there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. October 15th, 1872. Dr. Emil Bessels rushed onto the bucking deck of Polaris. The icy wind lashed his face, his thick beard doing little to shield him from the bitter cold. Several of the officers had been playing cards in the cabin when the announcement came. Water was flooding in. Polaris was sinking. The German doctor was nearly bowled over by a sailor shoving past him. The crew was rushing to and fro, heaving supplies overboard. Captain Buddington was shouting orders, his slurred voice barely audible over the howling Arctic wind. Bessels rushed to the side of the ship to assess the situation. As he reached the edge, he saw that the gap between the ship and the ice was rapidly growing wider. A 40-foot chasm of dark, surging, deathly cold water stretched out before him. He ducked, barely dodging the ropes, flying only inches above his head. The ship surged with the tide, and the doctor steadied himself against the side. Those were the ice anchors, he thought. We're completely adrift now. Polaris righted herself, but was soon drifting further and further from the crumbling ice flow. As Dr. Bessels watched the men on the ice disappear into the darkness, he heard a sorrowful cry echo from the marooned crew. Farewell, Polaris. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
This is our second episode on the Polaris Expedition of 1871 to 1873. Last week, we followed the ship's journey into the north, culminating with Captain Charles Hall's tragic death in the winter of 1871. This week, we'll explore the ultimate fate of the expedition, as well as the crew's desperate attempts to return home alive. Polaris had set sail from Brooklyn Navy Yard in June of 1871 with the goal of reaching the North Pole. Immediately, she endured an ethnic divide between the German and American sailors as they took sides in a rivalry between the captain, Charles Francis Hall, and the lead science officer, Dr. Emile Bessels. On September 2nd, Polaris reached 82 degrees, 29 minutes north, putting her further north than any exploration before her. However, Polaris's misfortune soon turned from inconvenient to tragic. The captain perished that October after falling ill under highly suspicious circumstances. As he lay on his deathbed, he accused Dr. Bessels of poisoning him. The crew's already fragile discipline eroded entirely under sailing master Sidney Buddington, who proved a drunken, incompetent captain. The crew hunkered down for a harsh winter, the possibility of reaching the North Pole a distant hope. As winter drew to an end, the crew of Polaris faced the renewed challenge of completing their journey to the North Pole. By March of 1872, with the return of the sun, the weather had improved enough that the crew could keep exploring the area. Assistant navigator George E. Tyson, first mate Hubbard Chester, and Dr. Emil Bessels pushed the new captain, Sidney Buddington, to complete their mission. Buddington had been overly cautious and combative while Captain Hall was alive, and now he was considering cutting the expedition's losses and returning home. The stalemate between the officers continued as the weather grew warmer. With no word on their next moves, the crew built up their stores of food with freshly hunted musk ox and bear. The primary hunters of the party were the Inuit men, Joseph and Hans Hendrik. They had both accompanied Arctic explorations before and knew their way around the hostile region. Captain Hall had allowed them both to bring their families along on the voyage, which now meant that there were six additional mouths to feed. In May, they began sending groups out on short trips to explore the area. Meanwhile, Bessels and meteorologist Frederick Meyer continued their scientific studies in the ramshackle observatory they'd constructed the previous fall. On June 8, 1872, First Mate Chester and meteorologist Meyer led a party in the longboat Grant to explore the waters. After rowing for a few miles, they dragged the Grant onto an ice floe and embanked between two icebergs for the night. Early the next morning, the watchmen woke them from their sleep with the cry of, The ice! One of the icebergs was quickly sweeping toward the party. Meyer, Chester, and the four other men fled the campsite as fast as they could and barely escaped with their lives. They watched as the Grant and almost all of their provisions were crushed between the two massive walls of ice. 
Fortunately, they weren't far from the Polaris, and all six men were able to make it back unharmed. For the next few weeks, they continued to explore the area with the one remaining longboat and sled dogs. However, the greatest danger was still to come. As the crew would soon learn, the Polaris's rough winter resting on an iceberg had taken a toll on the ship's body. In early June, the engineers started reporting leaks in the hull. Water was starting to enter the boiler room and damage supplies. The crew worked tirelessly to fix the holes, knowing that if they failed, they would be stranded in the Arctic with no way home. After the loss of the lifeboat and supplies, the deteriorating condition of Polaris's hull was the final straw. On August 1st, 1872, Captain Buddington decided to abandon the expedition to the North Pole and take the crew home. Many of the crew were relieved. Others, like assistant navigator George Tyson, were furious. The expedition had come so far, gotten so close to achieving their goal, only to give up. But the captain's decision was final. The crew gathered up their supplies and prepared to head south. While Buddington's decision was considered the safer option, heading south was still not an easy proposition. The waters were still icy and almost impossible for the leaky schooner to navigate. Moreover, the sea anchor had been lost during previous storms, so the only way Polaris could dock was if the crew fixed her ice anchors to the surrounding flows. With no safe passage to sail through, Polaris had little choice but to anchor to an ice flow. From August 15th to mid-October, Polaris made her way south, affixed to a floating chunk of ice. By October 15th, George Tyson had spotted narwhals breaching the water. With the horned mammals in sight, open water couldn't be far off. The worst, it appeared, was behind them. But that very night, the unthinkable happened. At 6 o'clock p.m. on October 16th, engineer Emil Schumann rushed onto the deck. He claimed the leaks in the hull had worsened and the water was nearing the pumps. If the pumps were inundated, they couldn't remove the water and Polaris would sink. Captain Buddington immediately ordered that all provisions be thrown onto the ice floe. It was time to abandon Polaris. Chaos erupted on deck. The men immediately began to throw things over the side, not bothering to inspect what it was they were handling. The sailors likely knew their chances of surviving without the ship were slim. With only two lifeboats and a kayak to navigate the icy waters, they would have no choice but to wait and pray that another ship found them before they froze to death or starved. But in the heat of the moment, they didn't care. The sturdy ice looked far safer than the Polaris's leaking hull, and no one wanted to go down with the ship. The crew worked for hours on the ice, gathering provisions and making sure nothing was lost in the surges. And then the ice flow began to crack. George Tyson talked to the captain on board the ship. Apparently, the engineer's complaint had been false, and Polaris was experiencing no more leaks than she already had been, and what little additional water had flooded in was quickly disposed of. 
the assistant navigator rushed back to the ice to spread the word. He had only just stepped off the ship when the ice anchors snapped. Having no anchor to ground her, Polaris was thrown loose by the current. On the ice, Tyson pulled a pair of ox skins away from the bucking ship. Startlingly, he found Hans Hendrik's children bundled up inside. He'd just barely saved them in time. He set the confused children by the supplies and rushed to help the others, hoping they could steady the ship. But there was no escape from this calamity. Polaris was now completely separated from the flow. Within moments, the crew members on the ice were drifting away into the impenetrable darkness. No shelter in sight, the adrift crew members wrapped themselves in musk ox skin to seal themselves from the bitter cold and howling storms. There they remained as the tide carried them far from Polaris and far from any semblance of human life. Coming up, the separated Polaris crew struggles to survive a second Arctic winter. And now back to the story. On October 15, 1872, the ice flow holding the Polaris in place split. Many of the crew had been offloading supplies onto the ice when the ship had broken away, and now they were stranded. Assistant navigator George S. Tyson surveyed the crew now trapped with him on the ice. Among others, there was meteorologist Frederick Meyer, the cook and the steward, and all of the Inuit. Joe, Hans, and their respective families. Nineteen souls in total, including children, were now stranded. The men, women, and children had kept themselves warm by bundling up in musk ox skin. They were at least safe from the elements. For the rest of them, things might be more difficult. The sheet of ice they found themselves on was almost circular, with a circumference of about four miles. The ice was uneven, with varying thickness. Bodies of water dotted the ice where water had pooled in crevices and gaps. If the crew didn't know better, they would think they were riding on a floating island. Fortunately, they had the supplies that had been abandoned by the main ship, including an adequate amount of canned food. They also had a number of sled dogs and the ship's two lifeboats. Tyson knew that the longer they waited, the further the ice would drift away from their crippled ship. If they couldn't make it back to Polaris, they would be at the mercy of the elements for the harsh winter. Tyson tried to rouse the crew to drag the lifeboats to the water so they could make for land. But the irritable sailors complained of being tired, cold, and wet. They preferred to wait for Polaris to return and rescue them. Sure enough, the next day, Polaris appeared on the horizon. Overjoyed, the men raised a flag and some rubber cloth and attempted to hail the vessel. Surely she would spot a dark signal against the pure white ice flow. But their efforts were in vain. Polaris vanished behind an island, leaving the wayward souls with no way to reach her. October 16th. The stranded crew was astonished when the ice split again beneath their feet, separating important supplies from the crew. Tyson called out to the sailors to grab one of the lifeboats and cross the water to retrieve them. However, they were so frozen with fear that he couldn't convince them to move. 
ice pieces kept splitting away from the ice flow, and now the castaways feared they would soon be out of ice to stand on. Meanwhile, on board the Polaris, Buddington and the crew struggled with problems of their own. Fourteen men were still on the ship, including Captain Sidney Buddington, Dr. Emil Bessels, First Mate Hubbard Chester, and eleven others. They searched and searched for their lost comrades, but the darkness made it impossible to tell which way the ice had drifted. A grim feeling hung in the air. They knew they would most likely never see their companions again. Eventually, more pressing dangers forced them to give up their search. While the crew was still able to raise steam from Polaris's engines, the ship's hull was incredibly damaged. Captain Buddington still believed she was seaworthy, but there wasn't enough time to make the trip south before the winter set in. They had no choice but to head for the nearest body of land and wait out the winter. If they were still alive in the spring, they could try again then. But the ship's problems ran deeper than Buddington anticipated. Like all other steamers of the day, Polaris was equipped with direct-acting steam pumps. According to the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, these pumps were used for everything from fighting fires to moving seawater into fish tanks and clearing toxic bilge water from below deck. Most importantly, they were used to pump out water whenever the hull sprung a leak. Unfortunately, Polaris's pumps were now relying on a dwindling supply of coal. If the engine gave out, the crew could raise sails and continue onward. But without the pumps, she would eventually fill with water and sink. In other words, the combination of the leaks and the lack of coal were the ship's death knell. There was now no hope that the Polaris would ever carry them home. When they finally made landfall, Buddington ordered the crew to prepare to abandon the ship. The new plan was to salvage what they could from Polaris to erect a hut, which would house the crew through the long winter. But since the expedition was expected to take at least two years, there was no hope of a timely rescue, and the crew didn't have the means to survive another year or two at this high altitude. Most of their supplies had been left on the ice with Tyson and the others. That left Buddington and the other officers with only one remaining course of action. The next summer, they would build boats out of Polaris's wreck and make a desperate attempt south. The men were keenly aware of how slim their chances of survival had become. The last time an Arctic expedition had to abandon ship was when Sir John Franklin's HMS Terror had been frozen in and the entire expedition was lost. There had been rumors of starvation, cannibalism, and infighting, all without a living soul to confirm them. Taking their chances on improvised lifeboats seemed an optimistic proposition compared to that alternative. Buddington appointed first mate Hubbard Chester as the foreman of construction. Chester's unshakable determination and colorful sense of humor breathed life into the grim sailors. As the construction progressed, the workers were startled to hear the distant barking of dogs. In the distance, 
they saw two mysterious figures approaching their campsite from across the ice. At first, the men hoped that some of their lost crewmates had found them again. But as the figures drew closer, they saw they were Inuit men armed with rifles. The Inuit men, who introduced themselves as Avatuk and Majuk, had been out hunting when they stumbled upon the campsite. After hearing the Polaris's story from Buddington and the crew, the hunters promised to do what they could to help. They left and returned a few days later with four other men and supplies to help construct the crew's winter shelter. Thanks to their assistance, the two-room shelter was completed by October 24th. The crew named it Polaris House after their fallen ship. Meanwhile, George Tyson and the crew members stranded on the ice floe had given up all hope of being rescued by Polaris and were busy constructing their own igloo shelters. It was difficult work, especially considering that there were only six hours of daylight to work by. But thanks to Joe's expertise, they soon had a functional winter encampment. The camp consisted of five igloos connected by snow tunnels. There was one small hut for Tyson and Myers, one for the other crew members, and one for Joe's family. The final two igloos would be used to store their provisions and as a cookhouse. Hans built a sixth hut for his family, separate from the others, but close by. A traditional Inuit igloo is shaped like a parabola rather than a circle, so the wind curves around it. The ice walls trap the warmer air in, while a vent in the roof keeps the inhabitants from suffocating. Unfortunately for George S. Tyson, not all of the stranded party's problems could be solved with walls of ice. The crew was growing increasingly restless, impatient, and hungry inside their enclosures. Before long, he found himself facing the same insubordination that had plagued the first leg of the Polaris's journey. During the initial voyage, when Captain Hall had clashed with Dr. Emil Bessels on how the scientific corps should be directed, the German members of the crew had backed the doctor. One of the chief instigators of this ethnic divide was the German meteorologist Frederick Meyer. The majority of the crew now stranded on the ice were these same Germans, who had not been disciplined at all during Buddington's captaincy. And the only other officer besides Tyson was Frederick Meyer. Tyson attempted to organize the men into exploration and hunting parties, but the Germans ignored him. They would only listen to Meyer, who refused to cooperate. The only thing that Tyson and Meyer seemed to have seen eye to eye on was the party's food situation. The officers decided to strictly ration the food to ensure it lasted as long as possible. There was no guarantee they would find any game out here on the ice. Their meager rations consisted almost entirely of canned meats and tough biscuits. Each man could only have two tiny meals a day. Joe and Hans supplemented the rations by hunting seals. Though a subject of controversy today, sealing was an essential part of Inuit life. According to T.H. Manning's Geographical Journal of 1944, they would hunt by boring a hole into the ice and waiting for hours until a seal came up for air. When it did, the hunter would try to shoot or harpoon the animal before it dove again. Each day, Joe and Hans would venture out onto the ice, 
looking for the spots where it was the thinnest. Then they would sit and wait for a seal to show itself. Whenever they did catch a seal, nothing went to waste. The blubber was used as oil to cook the meat and heat the crew's huts. The seal skins made ideal garments for the freezing travelers to keep out the cold air. Unfortunately, the days when they actually did catch a seal were few and far between. While the Inuit went out and hunted, the sailors did little more than stay in their igloo, playing cards or resting. Before their separation from Polaris, Buddington had distributed firearms to all the men for unknown reasons. The result of this was that every sailor had a gun. However, Tyson hadn't thought to take his own weapons with him while offboarding supplies from Polaris, so he was unable to assist with the hunting. By this point, Tyson was living with Joe, Hannah, and Sylvia in their igloo, and Meyer was living with the crew in theirs. The tension between the two officers was rapidly spilling over into the rest of the crew. They had no instruments to determine where they were in the ocean, and Tyson and Meyer could never agree upon where the flow was drifting. The German crew trusted their countrymen more than the American Tyson. They even started calling Meyer the German Count. Some days, when Joe and Hans would catch a seal, they would divide it for the crew, but take slightly more meat for themselves. Though Tyson understood the reasoning behind it, the hunters had to keep their strength up after all. The crew in the igloo started to resent it. One day, Joe gave Tyson his pistol. If the crew were to lose their minds with hunger, it was Tyson's job to defend Joe's family from his desperate shipmates. Indeed, a confrontation did come. One evening, sailor Robert Kruger burst into Joe's hut looking for the assistant navigator. He proceeded to hurl verbal abuse at Tyson, swearing, cursing, and threatening to attack him. Not wanting to escalate the situation further, Tyson absorbed the assault and agreed to fight only if the man formally challenged him. Soon, Kruger realized that he couldn't goad Tyson into rising to his taunts and left the hut deflated. No harm came to anyone. As months wore by, the crew's increasing hunger and lack of discipline wore down on them. Tyson kept track of the stores of food and noticed that they were running out far quicker than they should have been. Though he wasn't eager to face this conclusion, he had no choice but to recognize it. Somebody was stealing food. Back at Polaris House, the rest of the beached crew was faring significantly better. The Ita Inuit, a tribe of about 20, had settled near Polaris House. These new neighbors proved both a benefit and a hindrance to the explorers. They did help with tasks such as hunting and building shelter. However, they preferred to stay within Polaris House's walls rather than in their own igloos to sleep. The house wasn't built to hold 30-odd people, so it was quite uncomfortable for everyone. To make matters worse, the sun had long since vanished from the Arctic skies, and daylight wouldn't return until spring. But despite the discomfort, the crew kept up their duties, resuming a regimented schedule similar to the one they had followed at sea. Dr. Emil Bessels continued recording data for the studies he had begun at Thank God Harbor, 
including temperature, weather patterns, and wildlife. He even tracked the behavior of Thomas, the ship's cat, who would routinely prowl at night before settling down in front of the stove to purr. This pattern of life went on for the remainder of the winter, the crew never forgetting the perilous voyage that awaited them once summer arrived. Aboard the ice floe, conditions became more and more desperate. There were many days when Joe and Hans never caught a seal, and their rations dwindled steadily. One by one, the sled dogs perished. Several of them had to be shot to spare them the slow death of starvation. Though Tyson was aware of the mysterious disappearance of rations, he had no means to enforce his rules on the crew, who were all armed with guns. Rather than enrage the men, he decided to let it slide and pray that they would somehow drift to dry land. The children cried for lack of food, but there was little anyone could do to help them. On occasion, against his better judgment, Tyson found himself giving some of his meager rations to Joe and Hannah's daughter, Sylvia. At one point, she remarked of him, you are nothing but bone. The winter progressed in this monotonous fashion, while the path of their drift continued to be the cause of speculation. Frederick Meyer claimed that he could divine the location of their flow from the stars. However, his expertise in astronomy proved fallible, as time and time again his calculations were incorrect. Disillusioned with the meteorologist, the crew stopped listening to him. Meyer's status as the German count had ended. In February, Joe and Hans began to notice narwhals breaching the ocean waves. Though they were too far away to catch, the sight of the large tusked mammals heartened the men. It meant that the flow was drifting further south. On March 3rd, Joe caught a large seal. This was the first time the men's appetites had been satisfied in a long time. They spent entire days separating the meat and cooking. They were so hungry, they drank the blood and milk of the female seal. The igloos now resembled slaughterhouses, with blood staining almost every surface. While the dwellings had never truly been comfortable, now they felt like a tomb that the residents were doomed to drift in forever. One day, Tyson heard a shuffling and growling in their camp. He got up and crawled outside. A polar bear was rooting through the igloos. Joe's hunting rifle was lying outside the hut. Tyson slipped out of the igloo and made for the gun. But before he could grab it, the bear saw him and charged. Tyson dashed back to the igloo and dove inside. From within, he heard roaring, growling, and scratching. But the bear was unable to penetrate the thick snow walls. When he finally heard the bear move away, he crawled out again and seized the rifle. Tyson's first shot missed. The bear charged again. As it closed in on him, Tyson lifted his rifle and fired again. The bear tumbled to the ground and slid across the ice, coming to a stop right in front of him. The bullet had pierced through the beast's heart and out his back. The assistant navigator let his rifle fall to the ground with relief. Jackson will be pleased, he thought. We will eat again tonight. 
Coming up, both groups of the stranded Polaris crew complete their journey. And now back to the story. April 24th, 1873. It had been almost two years since the steamer Polaris had set sail from New York to explore the North Pole. Though she had made it farther north than any other ship in history, her crew was in desperate straits. On their return home, the crew had been separated, leaving 14 of them with the ship and another 19 drifting on a sheet of ice for the long winter. Almost half a year had passed since assistant navigator George Tyson and his companions had been separated from the Polaris. What little hope they had of seeing dry land again was quickly fading. On many nights, Tyson lay in the barely warmed igloo with Joe's pistol in his hand, contemplating ending his drift for good. His religion was the only thing that stopped him. Over time, the ice floe had broken into smaller and smaller pieces. The camp that had been their home was ruined, leaving the survivors to float on a tiny piece of ice. They kept all their belongings stashed on their one remaining lifeboat, ready for a sudden emergency. The seal and bear meat had long since run out, and once again, the floating men were starving. Meteorologist Frederick Meyer was in the worst condition. One morning, they spied a dark, familiar shape on the horizon about eight miles away. The starved drifters leapt to their feet. A steamer. It was the first ship they'd seen since the Polaris disappeared. They hurriedly raised their colors and attempted to hail it. But the ship vanished. Disheartened, the men set up a watch schedule so no sealer, whaler, or other potential rescuer could be missed. Five days later, the crewmen caught another glimpse of a steamer, drifting about eight miles away from their position. Once again, they raised a commotion, but once again, the ship did not see them. This close to freedom, the crew felt even more trapped than they had been during the winter. And with Frederick Meyer close to death, they devised another plan. April 30th, 1873, another steamer appeared on the horizon, Wasting no time, Hans Hendrik leaped into his kayak and rowed frantically towards the ship. Though the fog was dense, he made it through, hollering, American steamer, in broken English. Those on the ice waited with bated breath to see if they would finally be saved. At last, a boat appeared through the fog. It was a whaler, the Tigress. Hans was leading the ship in their direction. George Tyson raised a cheer, which was swiftly echoed by the men. Their perilous time on the ice was over. Once on board, the crew was suitably taken care of. They regaled the Tigress's crew with the story of their drift, which the whalers took in with amazement. When the survivors received their meal, they had never felt so grateful in their lives. Tyson remarked, I shall never forget those cod and potatoes. No subsequent meal can ever eclipse this to my taste. On May 12th, the Tigress returned to St. John's, Newfoundland, to deposit her cargo and the crew of Polaris. 
A fellow whaler had sent a telegram ahead, so when they finally arrived in Canada, they were met by crowds of curious onlookers, eager to behold the men who had drifted on the ice for half a year. They were especially curious about the Inuit on board and started a collection of money and candies for the children. Ironically, the sweets made the kids even sicker than they had ever been on the ice. Meanwhile, the American consulate of Newfoundland had made every arrangement to take the crew back home at last. But the Polaris's story was not yet over. The remaining 14 crew members at Polaris House were preparing to make their own journey homeward. Dr. Emil Bessels had his hands full, as the health of the crew was quite precarious. Their second Arctic winter had left them weak and strained, and their diet of seal and bear was barely keeping scurvy at bay. Captain Sidney Buddington once again put First Mate Hubbard Chester in charge of building boats to make the desperate attempt home. They stripped the Polaris of its wood and began construction. The crew named one of their boats Hopes Dashed, and the other went unnamed. On June 3rd, their Eta neighbors waved goodbye as the boats set off. Hopes Dashed and her nameless partner battled the waves as they headed southward. The construction team had done the best they could, but the boats were still barely seaworthy. With limited navigational ability, all the crew could do was head south and pray that a sealer or a whaler would spy them and come to their rescue. For weeks and weeks they traveled this way. The men continued to lose whatever they had left of their hope. Even Thomas, the ship's cat, seemed disheartened. One day he wandered away into the Arctic cold, never to be seen again. On June 23rd, at 10 p.m., first mate Hubbard Chester was on watch. His eyes were scanning the horizon when his breath caught in his chest. A massive grin broke over his face and he bellowed, ship ahoy. The cry was taken up and the crew hastily grabbed their flag, the historic flag that the late Captain Hall was given before their departure and hoisted it as high as they could. The whaler approached and Dr. Bessels let out a sigh of relief. The torturous expedition was at an end. A smaller ship than Tigris, the whaler Ravenscraig was barely able to accommodate the men, but the crew was generous with what they had. By September, the ship had returned to Dundee, Scotland. Bessels, Buddington, Chester, and the rest booked first-class passage across the Atlantic and finally arrived back in New York on October 7, 1873, almost two years after their anchorage in Thank God Harbor. By the time they returned home, the naval inquiry into the Polaris expedition was well underway, having begun on June 5, 1873. George Tyson testified first, as he was the ranking officer of the first group to be rescued. Tyson testified to the lack of discipline aboard the ship, Buddington's drinking, and the destruction of the old boiler. 
He also aired his suspicions about the mysterious circumstances of Captain Hall's sudden illness. Though all on board had heard Hall's deathbed accusation of poisoning, none of the crew knew about the romantic rivalry between Hall and Dr. Bessels. They had a shared interest in sculptor Vinnie Ream. Bessels himself testified about his treatment of the captain and submitted to a thorough investigation. The Surgeons General of both the Army and the Navy reviewed the medical testimony of all the witnesses. While there was no body to examine, they ruled that Dr. Bessels had given the best care he could under the circumstances and that the captain's death had been due to a stroke. With the inquiry over and all questions answered, the crew returned to their lives. Tyson continued to work as a whaler, still faring the Arctic seas. Bessels went to work at the Smithsonian Institution and published his scientific notes from the expedition. Nothing is known of whether his affection for Vinnie Ream was ever reciprocated or if they ever spoke again. Over the next hundred years, Arctic expeditions continued to be sent northward, and men did eventually set foot on the North Pole. However, it would be many more years before anyone bothered to investigate the legacy of the Polaris expedition. In the cove that used to be called Thank God Harbor, now known as Hall Bay, a new expedition arrived in 1968. Chauncey C. Loomis, a professor at Dartmouth College, was writing a biography of Captain Charles Francis Hall. After a great amount of difficulty, he had obtained a grant to exhume Hall's body and take a sample of his fingernails and hair for modern-day forensic analysis. Opening the coffin, they found Hall's body almost mummified, preserved in the permafrost of the far north. His skin was dyed red from the flag his crew had wrapped him in. Upon examination, the samples shed light on what might have been more than just a tragic illness. According to the bone and hair analysis, Captain Hall had ingested a great quantity of arsenic in his final weeks. Did Charles Hall accidentally poison himself while deliriously accusing the doctor? Or, far away from civilization, did Dr. Bessels get away with murder? We may never know, but what remains is a tale of disaster and luck, of skill and fate. Despite unimaginable odds in an incredibly hostile environment, every member of the ship's crew besides Captain Hall survived. They fought tooth and nail against despair and the bitter cold to come home alive. Thanks for listening to Survival. For more information on the Polaris expedition, amongst the many sources we used, we found the books Polaris, The Chief Scientist's Recollections of the American North Pole Expedition, 
and Arctic experiences, the history of the Polaris expedition, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Survival, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast. Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studio original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Survival was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. Tim Johnson.